0: Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower.
1: Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room. The intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And our series continues this week. More trans-athlete stories that you may not have heard, but you need to. And this week, our guests broke a great deal of ground. They'll be joining us later. But right at the top of the news over the past week, John Gruden and his emails. And it was revealed in New York Times that the now ex-head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders spent much of the period between 2011 and 2018 sending some rather vulgar sexist, racist, and homophobic emails, prompting his resignation as the Raiders' head coach Monday. Now, according to the Times, Gruden sent an email vulgarly criticizing NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell for his handling of the 2011 lockout, calling him the F-slur, and calling him a clueless anti-football P-word. There was racial epithets, and another pointed directly at NFL Players Association head, Demary Smith, referring to him as dumb Maurice and saying he has, quote, Michelin man lips. Nice racial meme there. And there was another email where he was quoted as deriding St. Louis Rams head coach, Jeff Fisher, for drafting Michael Sam, decrying what he's called, quote, bringing queers into the NFL. Now, ESPN has also said they're doing their own investigation into Gruden's email traffic when he was an employee with them. Gruden did a great deal of on-air work for their NFL shows and for SportsCenter, and he had a 10 years color commentator for Monday Night Football. Now, given that sports is developing this same strange set of parallel universes that news and entertainment are increasingly building, I expect to see John Gruden maybe landing at Barstool, Fox News, or even OAN at some point if he wants to continue as a broadcaster. Now, if he wants to continue as a coach, and he'll probably get a gig somewhere, just not in the NFL, but trust, he'll land somewhere. For football analyst and former NFL linebacker Emmanuel Acho, that wouldn't sit well with him. For those saying it was in 2011, it was such a long time ago, Keep in mind, he was 48 years old in 2011, but more importantly, the dude said he didn't have a blade of racism in him while being racist, which means he didn't even realize what he was doing was wrong, so he hasn't worked to fix it. So those thoughts John Gruden had in 2011, if he ain't worked to fix them, he still has them now, but y'all. This is why it's imperative to have minorities as voices and faces in positions of power in society. So you don't have rampant ignorance running around like this. The dude was homophobic. The dude was racially insensitive. The dude was sending topless photos of Washington cheerleaders to the president of the Washington football team. Make it make sense. Now, one thing this situation can be is a needed test of the NFL's claims of what they said football would be. Remember their Pride Month ad back in June? A couple weeks after Carl Nassib came out, the NFL puts out an ad saying that football is gay and football's lesbian and bi and queer and trans and so on. Commissioner Goodell, this is an opportunity to step up and really prove that you're willing to live up to those words. And there's some issues ready-made to do so. Coming up hard on the paint with a conduct policy towards things like this is one. Another is that in the states that have tried to pass or introduce laws similar to some of the laws you've heard of in Texas in recent months. We've been following this podcast. We've been following that story. There's 35 of those that want to pass laws that would ban transgender students in schools from participating for their school sports teams. Now, 15 of those states have at least one NFL team playing in its borders. Two of those 15 states will host a Super Bowl sometime in the next five years. There's an opportunity for the NFL to use the immense power of the nation's most popular sports league to do some good. Commissioner Goodell, I heard those words in June. This is a good opportunity from this situation to put needed action behind them. This football fan would appreciate that. Somebody who may feel sort of off the hook given all this breaking news of John Gruden is Dave Chappelle. Now, I'm pretty sure at least more than a few of you saw his sixth Netflix comedy special, which dropped last week. Seems he was trying to space himself as the king of all transphobic media and it drew a great deal of ire. Among those who were in on the clapback, noted transgender activist Raquel Willis. She was on CNN over the weekend. She didn't mince words.
0: Well, I think what's unfortunate is that he has not really grappled with the fact that as a black, cisgender, straight man, he could have easily used his platform to talk about the tensions that exist within our own community as black folks, right? I think that there's a way that he and other black cisgender straight comedians kind of gloss over the fact that black LGBTQ plus folks exist. And so it's easy for him to paint the LGBTQ plus community as purely just a white community. You know, there are all these ideas that queerness and transness, all these different things are white inventions. And that's just not true.
1: Some samplings of some of the column inches put on all of this. Sahih Jones and GQ, quote, America has only gotten better at trying to kill me. Laughter is no joke, which makes the betrayal, years in the making at this point, all the more devastating. I feel like a fool to have rooted for Dave Chappelle for so long. Things were easier when the men who wanted to hurt me just said so at the jump. Dahlia Bell in The Guardian US. Now, Dahlia Bell is a person I consider a good friend. They're a colleague of mine at Trans Lifeline, and they are a devastatingly funny comedian. They said quote, "We listen when you declare yourself team Turf. We listen when you compare our genders to blackface, as if both were defined by slapping on some paint to make a mockery of those we oppress." What about you, Dave? What could be a greater mockery than you throwing black women under the bus to cape for JK. Rowling? Social and race critic Michael Crawford for NBCNews.com, quote, Chappelle is playing one targeted community against another. He talks about what he sees as a difference in how America treats black people in the gay community. In our country, Chappelle said, you can shoot and kill a black man, but you better not hurt a gay person's feelings. He's living in a binary where all blacks are straight and all gays are white, ignoring the existence of people like me who are both and his comedy means that there are crowds just like the students who whooped and hollered as the bullies bashed my face in school are now circling to cheer him on. I don't want Chappelle to be canceled. I want him to pull out the threads of homophobia and transphobia that run through the quilt of his otherwise brilliant work. Now, my view is that yes, I did watch the special. But the thing that bothered me the most about it weren't necessarily the jokes. I've heard millions of them. I've heard the tropes and the memes. Can't be trans in our society without hearing them at least once. The thing that bothered me the most was the erasure. The continued erasure. The idea of Dave Chappelle trying to tell me That I must choose between my identities. That I can be trans, I can be black, you cannot be both. Wrong, Mr. Chappelle. I am both. All my identities go out in the world with me. I will say this, I would love to sit down with Dave Chappelle. I'd love to us to see each other eye to eye And I'd like to get his explanation of where he's coming from. Away from the filter of a crowd, away from the filter of the stage. Just two people having the human experience that he talked about in his set. And I would give him the opportunity to speak. But I would also like him to sit with me. And hear some of the transphobic nonsense that I've heard and covered in these legislative hearings across this country over the last 18 months, from Montana to South Carolina to Texas to a number of other states. I'd like to show him the press clippings and the film footage of the way some trans youth have been treated. Case in point, Two young, black, transgender women who lived in my state, who went to high school in my state, who were castigated and targeted by a K Street hit squad just because they were teenagers wanting to do the quintessentially American thing, represent their school on the fields of play. I would like to sit down with Dave to a screening of changing the game. I would like that. But mainly, I would just like to look Dave Chappelle in his eyes and say, I certainly am not a white man. And that's the biggest insult. I took from his special, the concept that my blackness and my transness can be erased. Hashtag just saying. Some positive shout outs right now. Shout out to Tiffany Abreu, the Brazilian volleyball kill artist and 2021 Outsports Triumph Pro Athlete Award winner. She's with the new team this season, the Sasco South Cristobal, as they head into play in the Brazilian Superliga. But she's already off to a blazing start in the Paulista tournament. Now, the Paulista is the professional championship tournament of Sao Paulo State. It is a tradition in a volleyball mad country. And Friday was game through their semifinals. It was a Sasko against Pinedos, and Tiffany was on point again. She's been in point all, th- all this tournament. 32 points in two, including 20 kills. Pinedos was beaten. They were swept out of the tournament. Now Sasco is in the finals of the Palista. The team that they'll play against will be decided Wednesday night. Bareri and Cesibaru. We'll meet each other in the in the deciding game of the other semifinal. That could set up a very interesting story for Tiffany especially because Ceci Baru had been Tiffany's team for the last three seasons. But at the end of last year, when the team was knocked out the Super League of Semifinals, Abreu's contract was up and Abreu went free agency, and now Tiffany is at Asasco. What a story that would be. Tiffany, we're going to be watching. Good luck down there. And the happy quote of the last week, it comes from Diana Taurasi, star guard of the Phoenix Mercury and voted by WNBA fans as the league's GOAT. The greatest player of the league's first 25 seasons and the road to the WNBA finals that are going on against the Chicago Sky right now went through a epic game five in the semifinals against the Las Vegas Aces. Taurasi had 24, Brittany Reiner led the way with 28-9 rebounds, and this game-winning block. 4.8
0: to go, Gray in inbound. Gray, looking in, has to float it in, gets it to Wilson, Wilson blocked by Reiner, controlled by Reiner, .7 to go!
1: The block preserved the win for the Mercury 87-84, but for Tarassi that was secondary. The primary thing was getting back to Phoenix, and getting back to her wife, Penny Taylor, a teammate through three WNBA championships with the Mercury. Taylor is giving birth to their second child. And after the post-game interview, Tarasi ended with this.
0: Morning. Good luck in the final. Hold it in, babe.
1: Coming. <laughs> <laughs> she ripped off the headsets, sprinted out the arena, got to a waiting private jet, and the GOAT got back to Phoenix just in time to see her new daughter come in the world. Born at 4.24 a.m. Pacific Time. And you hear that noise, that means gotta give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, we're gonna meet a trailblazer at the intersection of sport, transness, and inclusion. You're not gonna wanna miss this special sit down. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is The Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to The Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay Webb, and we're continuing our examination into what really goes on in regards to the issues of transgender athletes at all levels of sport last week we had e kerr pitcher up at the university of scranton or now former pitcher at the university of scranton looking at their process and also their experience now as they make the transition from a player to kind of a coach manager and it was an interesting interesting conversation and we hope to have more of those as we continue this special series of interviews and sit downs we plan it all the way to trans day of remembrance in november but you know something if we find even more interesting stories that come out of our surveys and come out of the queries we've been making as of late we'll keep this going because i feel as a journalist. And as an athlete who is trans, it is important that we have these type of conversations. Real people giving you their real stories. And this week, we have a story that was very real. And it's a piece of it I got to see on the court and got to admire off of it. Imagine, if you will, a kid in Bethel, Connecticut, circa about... 2009. Fearsome volleyball player. Excellent on the kill. Excellent on the dig. An all-conference player. All-state player. Got their high school to the state tournament four times. Then they matriculated to the college level. And they could play. They could really play. But then they said something has to change. Taylor Edelman what made that change in 2011 when Taylor decided that the game can wait, but his truth couldn't. But the game didn't have to wait long. You only had, it had to wait long enough to clear through the NCAA regulations. And then Taylor Edelman went back to the game he loved and the game he wanted to play. Did so authentically at the collegiate level at Purchase College New York for two years, rising to be the captain of the men's volleyball team there. Even beyond the court, that sense of leadership and that sense of daring has served him well in his life. Today, he is a health care advocate for LGBTQ health with the firm in Connecticut. In fact, now he's working near the place where it all began. And I am pleased and honored to bring it to you now. Beaming up from Connecticut, Taylor Edelman, welcome to the transporter room. Energize.
0: All right. Wow. That was the best intro I think I've ever received. So I appreciate that. Um, and I love that tidbit that you got to see me play, um, way back in the day, even though, like I was saying earlier, when we discussed this, that was a sore subject because we ended up losing that game, but, um, so happy to be here. And I, I love talking about the subject because like you said, too, I think a lot of times we forget how special our stories are. And for me as a dad, as a husband, I kind of get the eye roll like, yeah, 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 we get it that you played sports. And I'm like, no, but it was actually really cool and it was different and it was a story unlike anybody else's. But uh, yeah, so I appreciate that. always feels good to be recognized, you know, all this time later.
1: Well, that's the first thing I want to ask. What is the things that strike you the most looking back on it? Like you said, you're 30 now. You're Mm a father. You're in the working world. Yeah. It, in some way, does it seem like it's a life away in some ways?
0: It does. What what happened at purchase? Yeah, it really, it really does. Honestly, I mean, I've been back to the college a couple times, um, since I graduated, nothing, nothing crazy, but, um, I think the thing that strikes me the most is how I was able to deal with so much pressure. And I don't think I realized in the time how big of a deal it was because, One of the things I've I've never been able to truly fact check, but in my experience, it still stands Is I think I'm the only trans athlete to have played on both teams, the men's and the women's team in my four years, which I haven't heard of anybody else doing, you know, Skylar Byler went in D1 at Harvard, started swimming um, for the men's team. Amazing athlete, amazing swimmer. Um, Other folks have gone in or people have graduated and they've come out later but I, I don't know of anybody else that went in playing on one team and then on the other. You know, I was very privileged and very fortunate to have had the support, but just looking back on that, I, it didn't really occur to me that I was doing anything new or groundbreaking. It was just very business as usual, if that makes sense, if you can even imagine that. I don't think it really hit me until when I graduated in May, and that article came out, and I went to the city to go do um, the photo shoot with like Greg Luganis and with um, uh, Billy Bean and uh, a couple other folks that I was like, oh my gosh, people actually want to take my picture and they think this is important. So I think I was just very young and I was just like, yay, sports, you know, I love what I'm doing. And I'm so busy with school, being an RA and running two clubs and dating and what am I going to do after school that it didn't really strike me
1: tell me about that photo opportunity
0: what was that like that was cool because I remember as soon as I walked in the room so I took my dad with me to my parents I'm very very fortunate to have had crazy supportive and protective parents my dad went with me to the city because they didn't trust me to go alone even though I had gone to school in New York for four years so I remember walking in the doors it was in Soho And the first person I'm greeted with is Amini Funwa, which who is an extremely attractive man, Olympic swimmer from Tonga um, biggest white teeth ever. Like just the friendliest person. He's like, Oh, I've heard so much about you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like about me. I've heard about you. You're an Olympic athlete. Like that's amazing. It's one of the greatest accomplishments ever. And, Then from there, it was just, it was just a very cool, surreal experience, you know, getting the makeup and the hair and everybody was extremely affirming and it was a lot easier than I thought. I thought they were going to have me sit there for hours.
1: This little photo shoot. When was this? What was it for?
0: Yeah. So this was, it must've been around May, 2013. It was right after I graduated. Um, It was because there was an article that broke earlier that year. um, The guy's name, I think was Dan DiFrancesco. He contacted the athletic director asking if he can get in contact with me. And the school was very protective and they sent me an email and they're like, you know, this, this reporter, this journalist is wanting to speak with you. Are you okay with this? I don't know what their intentions are and blah, blah, blah. But when I gave the guy a chance and I sat down with him at the Starbucks on campus, I realized very quickly that, you know, his intentions were good. He really was just floored that there was an athlete here um he saw this kind of like a gem moment and and nobody was really giving attention to it so he just talked to me about you know my transition in sport and how it was what my experience was and I think he ended up winning some kind of national journalism award for it and went on to do something else and then after that I remember getting a call from Sid um from Outsports and uh, he was like it was an LA number. And I was, I was an RA at the time. So I was like stapling stuff in the hallway and he's like, is this Taylor? Littleman? And I'm like, who is this? And he's like, Oh, this is Sid Ziegler. And I wanted to talk to you. Like, how, have we no- how has nobody heard of you? Like, like your story is amazing. And I'm like, uh, I have no idea. I kind of just fly under the radar and do my thing and keep to myself. And he was like, what, this is incredible. Would you like to come and do a photo shoot as part of our, um, our champions edition in Outsports?" Um, Because there was a soccer player on the front, on the front, who had just come out. His name is Robbie. Robbie Rogers. Yes, Robbie Rogers. Yes, and I remember being like, "This is a big deal." I had no idea. Um, Yeah, so it was that was just so much happening in a few months. I can't even describe what that felt like. It was overwhelming, in a good way. Um, I wasn't used to any kind of attention like that. Um, especially with sports, I mean, I always did really well and I was always competitive and athlete and that's how I took out a lot of my frustrations, a lot of my dysphoria and aggression. So it felt good to be rewarded, but it was the spotlight was being shown on something that, uh, I'd been trying to hide for a long time in my life. So that was, it was just like, I was out and I was all out nationally and yeah,
1: I have the DiFrancesco article in USA Today right in front of me. And there was something on that article. It was something consistent every single day. This was you talking about volleyball. That even if the day was off when I felt uncomfortable, it was something I pretty much had complete control over. I could kind of put all my stress into my body and getting better at the game. How did volleyball play into this journey? Because also in the article, you said you didn't want to be identified as the trans kid throughout high school. Right. What was, what was this whole ride like for you, especially when you're at Bethel High and you're not just on the team, you are a mainstay on the team. What was all that like for you and dealing with the gender
0: identity stuff too? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, I think in high school, I I was just so used to being my own person and nobody could really figure me out ever. I guess I kind of was an enigma. And I think people kind of assumed that, you know, I was lesbian and I was just butch and I dressed masculine and that was my thing. And I was, was a tomboy. I was always consistently me. And um, so I think I kind of I just kind of went all in with my sports and and any talk around like who I was dating or who I was into, because I had uh, somebody that I was dating from when I was 15 to when I was 18. And I thought, you know, nobody knew. And it was actually one of my teammates and it was, it was a big deal, but it was so hush hush. And at the time I'm like, Oh, I can't say anything. So I'm going to out them. And that, you know, this person and that person and I constantly had to put myself and my feelings aside. So a lot of my frustration surrounding Okay, I'm just kind of, you know, do the best that I can. I have to kind of keep parts of my identity down below. I kept telling myself, and what I what I tell my wife when I talk about it is, I always told myself it'll get better. I'm gonna be able to get to a point where I'm gonna have that freedom. I'm gonna be able to be my own person and uh, and and own, um, you know, my identity. I always knew that I was gonna come out eventually. I just just waiting for the time, and it was like 18 years worth of waiting. So I think for me, I had such focus on sports where I was like, all right, I am so busy with sports. I practice every single day. I have games like two, three times a week. You know, I'm going to do a camp and then I have basketball coming up and then I have softball because that was my other all state sport. And, um, I just always had something to look forward to that would kind of take me out of that, out of that moment, if that made sense. Um, I hated wearing the spandex, to be honest. I hated having long hair because my mom wouldn't freaking let me cut my hair. So I had all these constant reminders how I wasn't maybe presenting the way that I wanted to, but my love for the sport kind of surpassed that. And I was able to override it for a little bit because my parents even told me, and they told me this after the fact that there were parents in the stands who used to make comments about the way that I looked or the way that I dressed, and they couldn't figure me out, quote unquote. Um, which obviously pissed my parents off and they, you know, the clause, clause came Mm -hmm. out, but they themselves, they were, they were, they were wondering too, and they never pressured me, but they kind of were like, you know, after I came out, um, and it's fitting that today's national coming out day, um they said that they knew that there was going to be an announcement as they put it, but they didn't know what it was going to be. I think gender identity was something they hadn't even thought of. I think they thought it was going to be more sexuality and, Oh, you know, I'm into women I'm into girls. And so when I said I was trans, it was like, we didn't even know that was a thing.
1: If I understand it right. Parents for the most part, they had their struggle, but mostly on board.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Big time. I mean, they said, whole bunch of problematic stuff and i mean even if i'm being 100 percent honest there are things in that article that make me cringe talking about being in the wrong body and this and that which i think was my own internalized um transphobia coming out and and trying to grapple with being out publicly and and being out was still new and then it was just like 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 i said somebody shining a light right on me and it was like you have to say all of the things and you're this this trans identity and you're repping all trans people right now, which I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just representing myself. I can't speak to anybody else. I mean, I honestly had a really easy time compared to what a lot of people have to go through. And I think that's no surprise given the way that I look and given the way that I present and that I'm trans masculine, that I'm white, um, you know, that I had a relatively easy time in school, that I was involved in 10 million things you know i didn't really hear a lot of nasty comments sure there were some you know here and there and even on the article that's why you never read the comments or anything people just being ridiculous and transphobic and nasty but no it's pretty good
1: you're talking about the comments i want to touch on that for a second
0: yeah yeah
1: because I mean, I'm pretty sure that you've kind of followed some of the things that have happened in Connecticut the last couple of years, especially in regards to like Andrea yes. Yearwood and Terry Miller a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, and often when it comes to trans feminine athletes, mm-hmm. the comments get nasty. They oh, get nasty. You. But you're also saying that there was a, there was the nastiness, for example, in your case as well. Mm hmm. Was that mm-hmm. a little bit shocking? Was that did that take you back a little bit?
0: Um, yes and no. I have to say yes because it's never good when people purposely, you know, uh, misgender you. Like people in the comments were refusing to call me he, and and you know they were using the wrong pronouns on purpose. And they were like, "You're never got news for you, honey. Like you never, you know, kind of relegating me to to genitalia and what's between my legs." And we all know how asinine that is, but. Um, and I say no, because a lot of my teammates and, you know, the other students at the school came to my defense and they like hopped on in the comments and they started like, mm-hmm. going at the people. So definitely had support. Um, and after a while, I just I just didn't look at them. You know, I think you have that compulsion to look at them at first because you're like, oh, my gosh, this is this is so I'm so vulnerable. I'm so out in the open you know, this is me, this is my authentic self. And, you know, people don't like that. I'm definitely a person where I want most people to like me. As I've gotten older, that definitely wanes. I think that's just something that comes with age too and that maturity and kind of coming into your own is that you give give less of a crap about, you know, people's opinions and attitudes. Um, Of course, I still care, right? I don't walk around just saying stuff and being like, well, I don't care. That's not true, especially being someone that a lot of people look up to in the community. And, you know, I still have people message me on Facebook or Instagram and ask for advice or where I go for my trans care, my firming care. And, you know, what about this? And what about that? What did I do for Binder? And what, you know, so I uh, try to do my best to, you know, set a good example and, and be as supportive as I can, because like I was saying in the beginning, when before we were recording zero support from anything anyone i mean just radio silence nothing
1: freshman year mm-hmm. at purchase 18 starts 2.16 kills per game mm-hmm. 230 attack percentage all in all not bad for a freshman yeah you came on the you come on the team you make immediate impact You're even better sophomore year. But even during that, at what point during those times did it hit you that this is not the way I want to play? And this is not the person I am. I can't be out in this court living my second best life.
0: Yeah, so I think the way it happened was the... Let's see. I believe it was my first semester. It was winter break of my freshman year. I was home. There was some kind of issue with one of my brothers. I'm the youngest of five, by the way. It's just always a million kids around. But one of my brothers and I were playing a video game online. And you know how nasty people are online if they're losing or winning or whatever. Mm. They're trash talking. And I mentioned something and the kid said something about me liking girls and being a lesbian or being a dyke or whatever and I just like went off because I think I had just had it like I was at a point in my life where I just absolutely had had it and so I went off on this kid and then my brother told my mom what had gone down so she came in my room and she was like what was that all about your brother told me that you know this and this happened She's like, do you have something to tell us? Like, are you gay or whatever? And I just started crying. And I was like, you have no idea what I've been dealing with for my entire life. I said, you have no, I just kept saying that. I was like, you have no idea and not really saying it. And then she was like, well, what is it? And I told her and I was like, mom, I'm trans. I know I'm trans. I've known always since I was like four years old and this is who I am, this is how I feel. And I thought it was a phase and that it would go away and it's not gone away and I'm 18 and what the hell. And you know, she just sat there with me and you know, kind of talked about it a little bit. And I remember pleading with her like, don't tell dad, which is hilarious because I had no reason to say that. I think I just was mortified at like the single most important male figure in my life, you know, and, and being like, I identify as a man and this, and, you know, he's like the man's man, he's handy. And he's like the cool guy. And he's, you know, the provider, like everything in the essential, you know, kind of like male dictionary, if you will, he was, and I looked up to him very much and still do today, but all that worked out. And it was fine. But I think from that point, I started my social transition. I had people refer to me as he and him change my pronouns My name is my name. So I I was born with the name Taylor Ashley, and that's the name that I kept, Taylor Ashley. And, you know, I'm proud of my name and very fortunate to have been born with that name. It just worked out. But I think it got to a point where, you know, the following season, I spoke with my teammates and I said, look, you know, would you guys still be cool? Like if I switched over to the other team and would you, you know, how would you feel about that? Which is so funny that I was asking them for permission in a way because it wasn't their decision, and they were all overwhelmingly supportive. they were like, they were like, "You're the best. Like, we love you. You know, you're gonna be great." And I, thankfully, I had the same coach on the women's team as the men's team, so it was very easy for me to have that conversation. And to be quite honest, the men's team stunk really bad compared to the women's team. Oh, so I they, saw the stats. Oh. <laughs> bad like that team there was no way I mean volleyball like a lot of sports is a team sport there was no way I, I could have handled that whole thing by myself that was a nightmare of a team that was a misfit team we barely had enough players had a lot of inexperienced players a lot of um, people not showing up for practice people like sleeping through games it was just nonsense where the women's team was a lot more on point still wasn't awesome but the men's team was just a hot mess. But I so badly just wanted the opportunity to play that as much as I loved to win and compete and that we were being competitive, just being affirmed in that role and playing on the men's team and then, you know, being voted as the captain my last year, that to me meant more than winning a championship or anything. You know, that was, that was my proudest moment really. So it was a gradual thing to answer the question. And, uh, you know, when I approached my coach before I started, um, in my third year on the men's team, he was like, all right, let's make this happen. We went to athletic director really didn't have to do too much. Like I said, they were very protective and they understood. And, um, it was definitely uncharted territory. They said they had never had a trans athlete come forward and say that they wanted to switch or, play on the team opposite of their gender they were assigned at birth but they were willing to figure it out and they were like hey we have this brand new policy now we're going to put it to use so it was imperfect but it got me to where i needed to be
1: now what was the nuts and bolts of that how did that how did that whole scenario play out in Mm a sense how did they get you from a to b for starters did you have to take the year off how did I the did policy not.
0: work? No, I did not have to take the year off because I had, so I started testosterone August 1st of 2011. So it's been 10 years now, which is so wild. Um, so I had already hit the one year mark, um, which the NCAA, like I said before, I think it still stands. They haven't really made too many alterations to the policy. Um, so I was good on the year because I started, my junior year which would have been about 2012 I believe so I was already underway and I was good on that Um, I had to provide them proof of my medication so my doctor had to write a little note saying this was the amount I was taking and this is where I was storing stuff and They had to know exactly where everything was, where my testosterone was. I mean, I injected myself. I've never actually been injected by anybody in my entire life, which is also wild. Um, So I was in control of where everything was in my room. You know, everything was copacetic. Um, They had to provide me a different um, locker room, which I never ever used because I came with my practice. Like I wore a tank top. This was prior to top surgery. I ended up getting top surgery until 2015. So wore a tank top and I had my practice jersey. So I just take my practice jersey off, put my game jersey on, and then I was ready to go and nobody thought anything of it. I always had kind of a small chest or a flat chest anyway. So it was definitely very lucky. But um, it wasn't, I don't remember it being that bad in terms of having to fill out all this paperwork and do whatever. I think there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes that the athletic director worked out to move me over. To the men's team and just kind of said, like, all right, you know, this player, he's now gonna be playing on this team. How did the
1: game <laughs> change for you? Because
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm an aficionado of college volleyball, especially. Women hit hard, men hit hard at yep. every level of the cop. When you're talking about the college game, you're talking about a whole new dimension of speed.
0: Yeah. It's and intense. For
1: you, what was it? What was it like? How long did it take you to really make that adjustment?
0: It probably took me the first couple of games to be like, whoa. This is, this is this is a different level because we even played some D2 teams and there's a big difference between D3 and D2. Um, and I knew when I was going in as D3, it was going to be fairly competitive, not as competitive as a D1 or D2. Um, and going back to, I actually did get some offers to play on on some D1 teams, one of them being University of Hartford, I think, which I had turned down because I, I as much as I loved Playing volleyball, I didn't want it to be the only thing. And that I had to... Because con- that's that's a game changer. I mean, you're playing constantly. And it's, it's very intense. So I knew with D3, I'd have a little bit of leeway where the quality might be lacking a little bit. Especially at a school like Purchase where they didn't really have a fully developed volleyball team. Now they're a lot better because they scout and they recruit and all of that. Um, definitely took me the first couple of games. I remember I got reamed in the face. I was in my outside hitter spot in the fourth position at the front front of the net. And this one guy went up to swing this middle hitter. Oh my gosh. I was, I was before the 10 foot line and he just smacked it on an angle. So hard at my face. But the awesome thing was I was able to keep the ball in play because it bounced right off my forehead. (laughs) We ended up playing (laughs) the point. That's when I realized I was like, this is this is serious business. I had never, ever been hit in the face. That was my job. I was hitting people in the face. I was hitting people, doing my thing. And uh, But I hung on. I was still an outside hitter. I was still getting double blocked. Five foot seven where the average player out on the court for volleyball team was at least six feet tall. I mean, at least. And that was even relatively short. So I was... I was proud of myself that I wasn't, um, you know, stuck as like a back row hitter or anything like that. I did do right side. I was outside. I would stand and pass because I was a pretty good passer. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a struggle.
1: Was there ever a point where you just said, no, maybe I shouldn't have done this.
0: For me, I think a lot of the guys in the team were looking up to me for pointers and and certain things, and I'll admit too, I do not think I was the easiest person to coach. I was definitely coming from an extremely dominant streak or in high school, I knew I knew my place, I knew my position. I knew that I was the best one out on the court at any given time. And this sounds so crazy and cocky, but it was the truth. Like at the time I just ran it and I was the captain and everybody did what I said and they knew to trust me. So when I was on the, on the college team and stepping in new territory on the women's team, we were winning some and we were doing well. And there was a lot of mutual respect there on the men's team. It was hard because there just weren't the skills there. Um, and the other thing was, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, there was actually another trans athlete. I believe he came onto the team my senior year. If it wasn't my senior year, it was my junior year. And I remember I had a very strained relationship with that individual um, because I was so bothered by how just open they were with their transness, and it was almost like a spectacle. Where for me, I was like, volleyball was the was the most prominent thing. My identity was second. You know, I just didn't walk up to people and say, "Hi, my name's Taylor Edelman, and I'm transgender, and how are you?" But that's that wasn't my thing. You know what I mean? Now it's, it's out and it's everywhere and I get it, and it. But this was at a time when, you know, people knew, but it wasn't really, it wasn't the thing like where I was just walking around and people were like, oh yeah, that's that trans guy or whatever. And he's on the volleyball team. People didn't even really know that we had a volleyball team. At what
1: point in a sense, did you get comfortable not only within your identity, but being out within your identity?
0: Mm-hmm. That's hard. It's probably the hardest question. Um, you know, it's still even a struggle today at 30 and having had some affirming surgeries and, you know, looking more like how I always imagined myself, but I don't think I've fully hit my stride until until probably I was in the workforce and I didn't have to go through the agony of explaining to people in job interviews, you know, I'm trans and this is what's happening and all of that. Like I I was able to be stealth. So I think it probably wasn't until after I graduated that I felt more at ease. Cause I had so much, so much anxiety about, you know, if I go to this job interview, are they going to like run my background check and see that, you know, I haven't changed my birth certificate. And when I go to the bathroom, I going to be able to go into the men's bathroom and is somebody going to give me a weird look? And so it probably wasn't until sometime in 2013 to 2014 that I, I finally start, I finally started to feel comfortable in, in more ways than I was uncomfortable.
1: What are you seeing in the landscape now in regards to the legislation, in regards Mm -hmm. to the popular perception, and also in regards to what are people missing about
0: this? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a really good question. I remember somebody asked me that when I, so back in 2012, the athletic director had asked me to kind of go on a little impromptu tour with him to other NCAA schools to talk about the policy because Purchase was one of the first schools to implement it. And, um, I mean, there were a lot of problematic things with that policy. Like, uh, they had to provide me a gender neutral restroom, but that they also had to um, identify that there was a trans athlete on the team, but couldn't say who. So a lot of times when I would go, teams would be trying to guess who the trans athlete was and, nine times out of 10, they never guessed that it was me, which is kind of comical, but it was, it was so ridiculous They, you know, they wanted um, to know how much testosterone I was taking, get my prescription from me, demand that I have it in a locked location so that people could get it. You would think I had some kind of like, you know, nuclear access government code or something <laughs> in my bed. It was just, it was just so much. And I mean, it was just, you feel singled out, right? Because nobody else on the team, to my my knowledge, was uh, going through that. But when I was on that tour, there was a trans woman there who asked me what I thought about trans women. And she made the distinction very clear. She was like, well, you, meaning, I'm assuming she meant trans mask or trans men, you, I can see how that works because you're going from feminine to masculine and you're going from estrogen to testosterone and you're gaining strength which i don't like to use those words at all i think that's incredibly demeaning um but she was like what do you think about trans women and at the time i was totally not prepared for the answer and again i think a lot of my internalized transphobia was coming out and i basically was like i don't really have you know i can't really speak to that i don't really know the science again bring it back to the science which now if I could go back like nine years, I would have slapped myself in the face and would have been like (laughs) trans men are definitely held to a different standard than trans women. And, um, because even in the NCAA policy, which I think it still stands today is if somebody is assigned male at birth and then they're transitioning they're trans woman, they, and, and they're not on estrogen for a year, they automatically change the team that women's team to be a, um, a mixed gender sport status, which renders them ineligible for championship play. So, but with trans men, we didn't have, um, we could have, so I could have gone into the, the, the men's team without having taken testosterone and wouldn't have altered the state of the team. And they would have been able to go for the championships and so on and so forth. So Definitely that double standard, because again, it shows, and a lot of what we're seeing with the Olympics now, and a lot of um, athletes getting singled out for it, a lot of trans women, particularly black trans women, um, you know, if if your hormone level isn't at the right amount, um, you're automatically disqualified, or you're ineligible, or this or that. I mean, look at what happened to Castor Semenya, right? You have someone who's intersex, who wasn't going to share that with anybody, because it's nobody's business. And because they thought there was something aberrant about her, just purely based on aesthetics and how dominant she was, they crucified that person and put her through hell. And there was even another trans runner who was disqualified and ineligible for the Olympics this year for Tokyo because her levels weren't right. And that's what really bothers me is you're that ta- no you're feet. talking about
1: the CC Topfer situation at the Olympic yes. trials. Yeah, Thank which you. was about in a which is one of those things. We did a show on that where we explained exactly what the whole DSD policy is, what the Caster menu rule is, and a lot of that, they're literally making it event-specific. But also, I also want to look at, I'm pretty sure you've seen all these bills out there. First, they're trying to ban transgender kids in a school from playing for their school team. Right. A number of those states have had court cases go uh, are in court mm-hmm. right now. Thank you, Trace Strangio for all that. Yeah. And now they're going after banning affirming care right now as a healthcare advocate. How uh-huh. do you feel about that situation?
0: Oh, well, they're inextricably linked, I think. And I always tell people that there's an extremely concerted effort to diminish trans identities. It's really a firm. It's really a form of eugenics, in my opinion. Some people might think that's really extreme, but it's not, it's no coincidence at all that we have these bills coming out simultaneously um, and they're all attacking trans youth, right? They're all attacking kids like middle school and high school age. And, you know, for me, that was the reason that I didn't come out in high school, right? That was, Nobody was talking about it, but that was the reason unconsciously probably at the time was that I would get crucified for being out and then it was going to be an issue. And I had no men's team to play on. I didn't have any resources. So it really upsets me now to hear that there are people who are wanting to harm these children because that's what it's going to do. I mean, these bills are particularly focused on, again, trans women, although obviously it's, it's for any um, trans athlete. Um, and thank God here in Connecticut, it was overturned all that BS, that court case and and everything that was going on with the two track athletes um, that you had mentioned earlier, because I mean, they, they've finished now and they've graduated and they've moved on, but, you know, it diminished them playing in school. You know, it was just, it was a, an unnecessary focus for them when all they wanted to do was play sports and Like I said earlier, for me, it was an outlet. For a lot of other trans athletes, it's an an outlet. You know, we want to play sports like anybody else. And it's not fair to just focus on hormones. Because what I tell people, too, is that so much of playing sports is a mental game, right? It's strategy. It's mental. You have to be really smart and quick and adept. And yeah, sure, it depends which sport you're playing. But mostly, like the sports I was playing, volleyball and softball and basketball, I mean... Yeah, there's running around. Yeah, there's hitting and, and all of that. But I mean, a lot of it is a mental game. You have to be intensely strategic. Um, so to say that just because someone identifies, you know, with the gender, um, you know, different than the sex they were assigned at birth. I mean, to me, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. But again, it's a very concerted effort to keep trans people at bay, to erase us, to render us invisible. I'm not okay with any part of it. And it's definitely something that I speak out against and something that, you know, I've talked to my staff about at work. I'll bring it up any chance I can, because I don't think people realize enough that these things are very, very connected. It's become a political issue when really it should not be.
1: How vital was having a support system around you to you As you went through all the phases, especially from being on the women's team Mm -hmm. through transit through going over to the men's team, because I read in all these past articles, there was a lot. The school actually, they had to get up to speed. A lot of people had to get, how important was it that there were support systems, even down to your teammates who were saying, Hey, there's this, there's that. We back. Mm -hmm. you."
0: How Mm -hmm. vital
1: was that to the process for you?
0: Yeah, it was crucial. You know, I don't think that I'd be where I am today without all that. I know it sounds hokey and a lot of people say that, but really having support coming from multiple, you know, facets was crucial for me of being able to, you know, being, being encouraged to be my authentic self and to, you know, get assistance or seek help and, Feeling like I didn't have to carry everything on my back. So I had always felt like I had to shoulder this burden or this hidden identity. And it just allowed me to open up and kind of explore it. And, um, you know, it definitely shaped my view of what masculinity is too. Because, you know, initially I was like, I gotta cut my hair short and I gotta grow a beard and I gotta go to the gym. Where now I'm like, all of that is so incredibly lame. It's so much cooler to dismantle that, to talk about how messed up that is. And, you know, how hyper-masculinity, toxic masculinity is far more harmful to men than to women. I mean, honestly, the way that, you know, men are aggressive or act violently to one another and, you know, just do horrible things or say horrible things and perpetuate, you know, rape culture and, and all of those nasty uh, parts of life. I mean, it's cool to be able to kind of see it from a meta perspective and just make it my own. Now,
1: one thing, switching gears a little bit, mm-hmm. because there's some, you told me in our virtual green room before we started, this is that you are into something that's close to my heart. <laughs> you are into some mystery science theater 3000. Yeah. So I want to know favorite, favorite character. And particularly memorable episode that stands out for you.
0: Oh, geez. Favorite character is definitely Crow. Just like so crass and just so, like so <laughs> good. Obviously the mischievous one, but I, I, love, I love Crow so much. Um, also, were you a Joel fan or you you more of a Mike fan? Joel. Joel. Jo- yeah. Team
1: Joel. Team Joel. Yeah, because yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I used to be Mike and I switched to Joel because I started with Mike. My my middle brother kind of got me on. Um, but favorite episode, the one that stands out that I've probably watched most is called A Touch of Satan, which sounds, it's so, it's so wild um, to me. But just that episode is everything. I remember I got a box set for my for Christmas, actually, I asked for that particular volume, just because it had that one episode on it. And this was before like streaming and all of that, you know, I was just like, Oh, I want that one episode. Um, and my aunt probably messaged me and was like, what is this about? Cause I was raised in a very Catholic family. So I think the Satan kind of like blew an <laughs> alarm and she was like, what does this mean? Like, what is this? And I'm like, listen, this is just a really funny show. And I love this particular episode. And she's like, oh, okay, that's fine. And then I just watched the crap out of it. And I remember bringing it to college with me and my roommate was amazing. She um, because I lived in a suite with seven other girls my freshman year, which was also wild. Um, She loved it. She was obsessed. And that kind of like linked us forever. And we still talk to this day. But yeah, even though that was a Mike episode, Joel is definitely my fave looking back, but Touch of Satan all the way. <laughs> that mm-hmm. one's it cracks me up every time.
1: So I can get you on, hey, I can get with you on that. Who doesn't love Crow? Who doesn't <laughs> yeah. love Crow T-Robot? <laughs> even though it's a tie for me between Crow T-Robot and Tom Servo. Mm. It is They're a, it's a, it a, it's a, it's a close race between those two. Cause they yeah. just play off each other so well as far as, but as far, Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't know. Favorite, favorite episode. Cause these movies are so bad. All the Godzilla episodes. They just, they just fry those. It's just great. <laughs> that and that and side hackers. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I don't know if I've watched that one. I don't well, know. That was the was. one where the, where the robots and Joel became a group. They became oh, a music God. group and did a song afterwards.
0: <laughs> I gotta, I gotta go back now. It's been a while since I watched because I know that they came out with uh, a newer, a newer season. Um, I forget the guy who they have in there now, but it was actually pretty good. I watched like one of the episodes and it was, it was decent. I'm glad that they, they brought it back. Um, but yeah, I love, I just love the good old oh. vintage MST3K.
1: But here's one. What's a current movie? Even a good one cool. that you would love to see get the MST3K treatment?
0: Oh, man. That is a good question that I'm so ill-prepared for. Jeez. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I would say movie, but I would love, because I'm actually a real big Housewives fan. We're watching, my wife and I are watching Beverly Hills right now because we just need something that is nonsense. I would love to see MST3K just like rip the Housewives to shreds. 'Cause they would do it so well. I mean, my <laughs> wife and I do it on the couch, but just like rip these rich ass like white people to shreds. <laughs> like I would love because it's so ridiculous.
1: Moving past purchase, you've built your community. Husband, father of four. In building this family, how much of adjustment has it been?
0: It's definitely been, definitely been tough. You know, I'd always wanted a family and I never knew what that was going to look like or how I was going to get it. And for me, my career was always the thing that was the most important, you know, after graduating, I'm like, all right, I'm going to work in healthcare. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And all of my identity pretty much was just full force into the work that I do. Um, But when I met my wife, which is, we worked at the hospital together. She's still there, but I've since left. I remember I asked her out on a date we went on the date and I'm like sweating. So I'm like, Oh great. Now I'm going to have to out myself and this and that because nobody knew at work, you know, at the time I'd been on the hormones for a while and I presented very masculine. And I remember when I told her, she was like, Oh, I already know. And I'm like, what? (laughs) How do you already know what's going on? And she's like, Oh yeah. Somebody posted or like tagged you in that article, that really amazing article um that came out when you after you graduated college last year and I was like oh my gosh so it actually helped me out in a sense because it already outed me and it took a lot of the pressure off and you know she was definitely in awe and was like that was amazing like wow that that's such a cool accomplishment and you know she's like I would have never known and you know if you want to talk about it you can talk about it if not you don't have to she was just very respectful for a cis woman who had zero experience with anything LGBT or any trans people at all. um, Oh my gosh. And here we are over seven years later uh, married, but that was the start of really feeling like I had an authentic relationship where I didn't have to quote unquote settle because I feel like in a lot of my past relationships, I was told to stay quiet or maybe treated not the greatest um, because people kind of felt like, I was more into them than they were into me because there was always something missing. I was always made to feel like I wasn't adequate enough, you know, whether it was like, I didn't have bottom surgery, didn't have a penis and, you know, or maybe I didn't present as masculine or because of my past that I wasn't fully, I wasn't happy, but, you know, being with someone who was not only a little bit older than me, more mature, just very open-minded, very loving and caring that changed the game. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm, I do deserve this. Like we all deserve to be loved and have somebody who's going to really care about us. You know, me being trans to her was like, she was like, great. You know, you're just a really cool person. Like that's, that's awesome. She wanted to learn more and she was very open about, You know, I I don't really know. And I'm like, well, come to these talks that I do, you know, Trans Day of Visibility, Trans Day of Remembrance. And, you know, I've I've done a whole bunch of things at Pace, at um, Norwalk Community College, other places, at Mercy College, all over. You know, um, whenever people want to hear me speak, I'm like, sure, if that'll help somebody, awesome, I'm there. Um, You know, and I I had a built-in family because at the time, she had, um, three children and she also had an infant who's my daughter. I've been in her life ever since she was like seven months old. Um, and for me, it was just kind of like, here we go full speed ahead, you know? And it's crazy to think she's Sasha's eight now and yeah, it's very, it's very different. Um, you know, and the kids, 21, 16, 14, and now eight, it's, it's just really wild to me to think I've seen them through their most formidable years. And the two teen boys that we have here, you know, a really good relationship with them. And, um, it's cool to be able to present a different side of masculinity to them. Yeah. So it's been really neat.
1: Even as you are now out, really comfortable in your own skin, really gender doesn't really matter as much in the, in your world as much anymore especially no. when you're dealing with dealing with being a dad
0: right right to me it's being the best person possible i mean i'm comfortable with myself but i'd be lying if i said there's not some kind of you know dysphoria creeping in i mean i think especially given the times that we're in with the pandemic i mean there's some scary thoughts or there's things, I mean, even just with the the stuff that you mentioned before, with all those bills, you know, against trans folks, that stuff does affect us, you know, whether we like it or not, no matter how far along we are, it never feels good. You know, we've made a lot of strides, but at the same time, there's a lot of just nastiness and attacks and people that would love to take us down and not see us exist in, in any realm.
1: What are some things that, especially with looking, putting your experience in the field as well, what are some things that teachers and coaches Mm -hmm. need to know Mm -hmm. going forward when they're dealing with, be it trans youth who want to be on the team, or just trans Mm -hmm. youth who just want to feel okay in their school?
0: Biggest thing is If a kid is coming to you and telling you who they are, believe them first and foremost, do not gaslight them. Do not tell them that they are not who they are because they know who they are. I mean, there was some stat years ago that I read that it was like 70 to 75% of trans kids know that they're trans from the age of four. We just lack the verbiage, right? We lack the vernacular and don't, don't know, but we know we have that innate feeling that we feel different. Right. So believe them. And also protect them at all costs go with them to the athletic group director go with them to the principal figure out ways to make sure their pronouns and their and their name right their chosen name are actually being used right because that's a huge thing when you're misgendering someone you're using the wrong name i mean that can just take somebody out they can just wipe them out somebody who is already teetering on you know maybe suicidal ideation or depression anxiety I mean, how could anybody not be depressed and anxious, especially now with what we're dealing with in society, but, you know, protect those kids at all costs, especially, you know, trans athletes when they're facing so much scrutiny in the world. Um, And I think it was a shock for people that in Connecticut, right, that those two track stars, those trans women were under fire as much as they were, but that shows people that Connecticut is just as susceptible to this kind of transphobia and homophobia and racism right as any other state we like to pretend that we're not because we're this like pseudo progressive state right we are in more ways than one but we've got a lot of work to do so it's it's really simple to me it's just you take that person at face value you take them and their identity and affirm them and then you figure out what the resources are. And teachers and coaches have a particular responsibility to know what the resources are, to know the policies, and to advocate for those students and those athletes. And if they aren't prepared to do so, you need to find a different job. It's just like in healthcare, you know. I, like you were saying early on that you fired many doctors. To me, honestly, those people have no business having MD or NP or PA after their name at all if you're not prepared for all patients, all clients, you should not be in the room at all. period.
1: I know a lot of trans folks especially who like the fact that you said that because that is one of the biggest hurdles we deal with is getting that healthcare right. in addition to just being in a given just feeling safe in the sporting structure and in mm-hmm. a lot of ways Taylor, you are a part of making that world a little bit better at the beginning. And I'm going to tell you, are a friend of the show now, so we're going to want you back. We're (laughs) going to want you back. And seeing you in social media and seeing you out on the streets and facilitating groups, your voice has been out there and I encourage you to keep doing so. Taylor Edelman, thank you for being on the transporter room. This is huge for me to finally put a face in a name beyond the clippings. And it was great having you. And yes, we're going to want you back.
0: Thank you so much. This is awesome.
1: We're going to beam you back down so you can continue the great work that you're doing. And I want to thank Taylor Edelman for being on the podcast this week. And I want to thank all of you for joining Me on this podcast this week and being a part of the Transporter Room family. And again, if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we do here and how we do it, please, by all means, leave a message on our Twitter page and on our Facebook page and coming soon our Instagram page. Because everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, live long and prosper, study as she goes. I'll catch you next week.